Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and firstly, I just want to say th thank you so much for coming. Uh, I've just been told there's 730 people crammed into this tent in the middle of a field uh, to listen to theoretical physics for an hour, uh, which kind of astonishes me, but I, I'm, I'm so grateful that, that you're all here. Um, I'm going uh, to tell you today uh, about one of the big questions in science. In fact, I think there's a sense in which it's the very biggest question in science. And the question uh, is simply, what are we made of? What's the fundamental stuff that you and me and everything else in the universe is constructed from? And it's, uh, it's an old question. In some sense, it's, it's, it's the oldest question in science. It's something that the Greeks started thinking about uh, two and a half thousand years ago. And of course, we've had a succession of revolutions in our understanding of this over the, the millennia and, and the centuries. And so what I want to do is um, just tell you uh, where we are now with our understanding of the fundamental building blocks of the universe, um, and just give you a little sense about where we might be going in the future. And I should warn you, we're going to cover a lot of ground uh, in this lecture. I'm going to tell you about uh, what's currently happening at the world's biggest particle collider, which is a machine called the LHC that's in CERN underneath Geneva, this enormous big uh, uh, ring that accelerates particles. I'm going to take you back to the Big Bang and tell you about our understanding of the very first moments of the universe and how that's informing uh, this question of, of what the building blocks are. Um, and on top of that, I want to give you a little sense of uh, the theoretical ideas, uh, both the ones that we know are correct and perhaps some of the speculations uh, moving forward um, that, uh, that you know, we use in order to, uh, you know, the prism through which we, we, we've, we view this question. Um, so all of that, hopefully in 40 minutes, that's basically everything in the universe in 40 minutes. Uh, and I'm hoping that, that I'll finish in time and then hopefully we can have uh, lots of questions. Happy to answer any question you have about uh, you know, anything in the universe, basically. Okay. Um, so uh, let, let me start. I, I've already said, you know, the classy way to sort of start these talks is, is to talk about the ancient Greeks and philosophy and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we, we made a little progress uh, since then. Uh, the first time that science uh, and the scientific method is used to uh, understand the building blocks of the universe is really in the Victorian times and in the 1800s. So in the 1800s, uh, we came up uh, with this picture. Uh, hopefully it's familiar to, to most of you, of course, it's the periodic table of elements. Uh, it's really one of uh, the most iconic images in all of science. Uh, we've managed to arrange everything uh, in the universe in terms of roughly 120 elements um, uh, arranged in this table. You can take anything you want, if you break it down, you distill it into its component parts, it, it consists of one of these 120 elements objects, or some combination of these 120 objects. Uh, it is, of course, one of the great triumphs in the history of science, and I'm rather fond of this personally, because this is the reason I stopped doing chemistry when I was in school. <laughs> because, you know, if you're a chemist, this is basically as good as it's ever going to get. Right? You've got everything in the universe, and somehow you want to arrange it into metals on the left that go bang when you put them into water, through to gases on the right that don't do anything at all. You've got to fit it into this stupid shape that looks like a pixelated version of Australia. It's got this big dip at the top. There, there are these 
two lines of elements in the bottom because you can't fit them in the middle where they really belong. You know, it's, it's kind of a mess. Right? And I don't know about you, but if someone came up to me and said, can you construct the fundamental building blocks of the entire universe, this probably is not what I would have gone for. You know, there's some version of this talk on YouTube, and I went into that rant. The comment section on YouTube can be remarkably nasty, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they really didn't like me knocking the coat. Arrogant physicist, how dare he knock chemistry like that. Um, I, you know, and I half thought about taking this feedback seriously and not, not ranting on, on this stage. Uh, the, the reason I decided to do it is that it's not just me that feels this is a bit rubbish. Nature feels the same way. This isn't the way that nature chose to construct the fundamental building blocks of, of the universe. Um, the first hint that there was something smaller than the atom uh, was made by a Cambridge physicist called J.J. Thompson in 1897. J.J. Thompson discovered a particle that was smaller than the atom that he called the corpuscle, and we now call the electron. Uh, within 15 years, J.J. Thompson's successor in Cambridge, a man called Ernest Rutherford, had understood what all of these things are made of. He'd understood that every atom that's there consists of a nucleus surrounded by a fairly blurry cloud of orbiting electrons. The nucleus is tiny. The, the analogy that Rutherford himself used was the nucleus is like the fly in the center of a cathedral, and that most of what we call atoms is just empty space with these electrons filling uh, very dilutely this empty space. We subsequently learned that the nucleus itself isn't uh, fundamental. The nucleus consists of uh, smaller particles called protons and neutrons. And in the 1970s, we learned that every proton and neutron has inside it three smaller particles that we call quarks. So by the 1970s, um, sort of physicists had stopped being given a classical education, and it wasn't cool to call things by Greek names anymore. So in their wisdom, my senior, very illustrious colleagues decided to call these quarks the up quark and the down quark. There's, there's nothing up about them, nothing down about them. They just had a lack of imagination. Uh, it turns out there's two different types of quark. And the proton contains two up quarks and a single down quark. And meanwhile, the neutron contains two down quarks and an up quark. And that's where our current understanding stops. We don't know of anything that's smaller than a quark, and we don't know of anything that's smaller than an electron. So the periodic table of chemistry has now been replaced by the periodic table of physics. This is what the periodic table of physics <laughs> looks like. Okay. Three particles from which everything is made. And, and you know, we're sort of, we, we're very familiar with this. We learn about protons and neutrons, at least in, in school, and electrons. It's kind of astonishing. Everything in the world, everything that we see around us, all the beauty, all the wonder, all the diversity, it's just collections of these same three particles arranged in slightly different configurations. You know, it's really a, an amazing story. Okay, so th that's what we, where we are. We don't understand anything that's smaller than, uh, than, than these three particles. And uh, we often say that these are the fundamental building blocks uh, of matter. And in some sense, it's rather like the vision that the Greeks had two and a half thousand years ago. It's, it's, you know, the details aren't the same, but, but the ultimate uh, fundamental concept is the same. There's something like a Lego brick. And everything we're made of is just stacking Lego bricks together in this way, the Lego bricks being fundamental particles. Okay, um, it's a nice story, uh, but there's actually something wrong with it. And the problem is, it's a lie. Uh, it's true that these are the smallest things we know about. It's true that we don't know of anything smaller or anything inside of these. But it's not true that these are the fundamental building blocks 
of what we're made. And that's really the story that I want to get across in, in this lecture, because it's a story that's not often told in, in, in popular science lectures. So according to the best theories of physics that we have, the fundamental building blocks of everything are actually not particles at all. The fundamental building blocks from which everything is made are much more nebulous quantities that we call fields. So a field is a continuous, fluid-like substance that's spread everywhere throughout space. Okay. okay. <laughs> this is not what we mean by a field. This is what a farmer means by a field or what a normal person means by a field. Uh, for a physicist, a field is something which exists everywhere in space. At every single point in space, it can take some particular value. And most importantly, that value can change over time. Okay, that's the idea of a field, and it's the fields that underlie everything we know about in the universe. So, so I want to start by just giving you a, what I hope is a rather familiar example of fields, because this concept of fields isn't actually new. The concept was first introduced uh, in the 1800s, uh, mostly by this man here. So this is Michael Faraday. Uh, Michael Faraday um, is one of the great experimental physicists of all time. He worked in London in the Royal Institution, spent, spent his whole life there. And he spent his, most of his life doing uh, experiments trying to understand the phenomena of electricity and magnetism. And most of those experiments that Faraday did, we actually uh, now do in school. I think many of them you, you've done yourselves. Here's an example of the experiment that, that, that Faraday did. It's a particularly simple experiment. So even me, as a theoretical physicist, should, can do it. I should say, I'm not just a theoretical physicist, I'm a very theoretical physicist. <laughs> okay, so, so Faraday would do things like this. It wasn't easy to buy magnets back then, so Faraday would construct magnets, and he would do this, this thing that you, you've, you've all done. You just push them together. And you see that as you push these magnets together, you can feel this sort of bouncy force building up. You can feel the, the pressure between them. And... You know, I don't know about you, for me, it doesn't matter how old I get or how many degrees in theoretical physics I have, you know, it, there's something just a little bit magical about, about that feeling when you push the magnets together. Because there's nothing you can see there. It's completely invisible what's between the magnets, and yet it's clear there's something physical that, that's there. And it was really Faraday's vision and courage and genius to suggest that there really is something there. There's really something uh, that you don't get to see, and it's not made of particles, but it's what Faraday called the, the magnetic field. He realized there's also something called the electric field, and uh, these are these objects which are spread continuously throughout space. So what I've drawn here actually is, or what I, I haven't drawn, what I've taken from uh, Faraday's notebooks is actually Faraday's own picture of uh, how these magnetic field lines build up between two magnets. Now, Faraday's an interesting guy. Faraday didn't have any education. He actually left school at the age of 14. Uh, he knew very, very little mathematics, certainly no advanced mathematics. And so it took uh, another physicist to translate Faraday's vision into the theory that, that we now use. That physicist is a Scottish man called James Clerk Maxwell. Uh, he sits here. Um, uh, Maxwell was actually the first professor of physics uh, at the University of Cambridge in something like 1860. Uh, and it was Maxwell who wrote down the equations of electricity and magnetism uh, that explain these fields and this phenomena that, that, that Faraday had, uh, had discovered. Uh, and in doing so, Maxwell made uh, one of the great leaps of science because he, dis he uh, discovered that these invisible electric and magnetic fields are very literally the only thing that we've ever seen. 
because it's ripples of these electric and magnetic fields that we now call light. In fact, at the time, we knew about light. Obviously, that, that was everywhere. Uh, Maxwell's discovery allowed us to realize that light is just a very tiny part of the electromagnetic spectrum, that there's now infrared light and ultraviolet light and radio waves and microwaves and gamma rays and the whole uh, um, uh, broad spectrum of uh, electromagnetic radiation. Okay, but, but by the way, this is a slight diversion, but I think there's something very nice about these pictures that I, I, I want to tell you about. Uh, the pictures are in black and white obviously, um, but in Maxwell's case, they're in black and white because this picture was taken before Maxwell had invented color photography. <laughs> and if, if you look down here, he's holding this we weird wheel in his hand. Uh, what this wheel is, it it's a spinning wheel that has three colors. And Maxwell was the first person to realize that the human eye detects color by three primary colors which, which are mixed together. And this was the experiment he used to do it. And then it was this discovery that led to the basis of, um, of, of color photography. Very, very smart man, James Clark Maxwell. Okay, so um, this is uh, the first place we meet fields, and we now teach this, this in school, that there's these, these electric and magnetic fields spread everywhere in space, and when they ripple, the ripples of these things are what we call light. But it turns out the legacy of Faraday and Maxwell stretches much, much further than that, a legacy that wasn't fully realized until the latter part of, of the 20th century, and, and that's what I'd like to tell you now. So things get really interesting when we add one further ingredient into the mix, and this is an ingredient known as quantum mechanics. So in uh, the 1920s, uh, various people such as Heisenberg and Schrodinger realized that when you look on the very, very smallest distance scales, the distance scales of atoms in particular, uh, the, um, uh, the common sense laws that we sort of you know, learn when we're young or we feel cor the correct way to describe our universe, those common sense laws just go out the window. When you look on the very smallest distance scales of nature, the laws of physics that, that govern what's going on there are to do with probability and are very mysterious and, and very counterintuitive. And in the 1920s, these were really laid down by, by people like Bohr and Heisenberg and, and Schrodinger. Now, the real fun starts when you take the ideas of quantum mechanics and the idea of Faraday and Maxwell that things are made of, of fields. You see, one of the key tenets of quantum mechanics is that things can't be smooth and continuous. In particular, energy can't be smooth and continuous. Energy gets wrapped up into little discrete bundles a uh, little knots, if you like, some little lump of energy. In fact, that's what the quantum in quantum mechanics means. Quantum means discrete or, or lumpy. So if you apply the ideas of quantum mechanics to uh, the electric and magnetic field, what you learn is that those smooth waves of electric and magnetic fields that we think of as light are actually not smooth at all. If you look closely, the light that is coming well, mostly towards me, actually, but uh, the light that's coming towards me is not smooth, but if you look closely, it's made up of little discrete lumps, little particles of light, and we call those particles photons. The amazing thing is that that same idea holds for every other particle in the universe. Let me give you an example. There is, spread thinly throughout this room, and in fact, thinly throughout the entire universe, a fluid-like substance that we call the electron field. And little ripples of those electron fields get tied into bundles of energy by the rules of quantum mechanics. And those bundles of energy are the things that we call electrons. 
So the electrons themselves are not the fundamental objects. They're ripples in an underlying sea of electron stuff. So the electron in you is made of the same stuff as the electron in you. You're both just ripples of the same underlying ocean of electron field. And the same is true for everything. The same is true for uh, the quarks. There are two quark fields that uh, spread throughout this room, and the ripples of these quark fields are the things that we call uh, the up quark and the down quark. And for every other particle in the universe, there is a corresponding field, a fluid-like substance uh, whose ripples give rise to the particle. So this is uh, really the, the, the main message I want to, uh, you to take away in this talk. The fundamental building blocks of everything in the universe is not particles. It's not particles at all. It's this much more abstract concept called fields uh, that are spread throughout space. You're not made of particles. You're made of these fluid-like substances called fields. All right. Um, let me... Um, let me tell you, give you a little sense about, about what this means. Uh, here um, is the simplest thing in the universe. So what I'm going to do is take a box, take every single thing out of the box that's in it until I'm left with a perfect vacuum. Okay? This, according to our best laws of physics, is what a perfect vacuum looks like. Okay. This is nothing. This is nothingness. Uh, what's going on here? You can take everything out of the box, but you can't get rid of the field. The field is everywhere by, by definition. You can't just remove it. The field is always there. And the field obeys the laws of quantum mechanics. And in particular, there's something called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle that, roughly speaking, says you can't sit still. You have to keep moving. And the field obeys the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So it, even in a perfect vacuum, these fields that are everywhere are just bubbling and frothing like a, a, a soup of, of stuff. This is what empty space looks like. Uh, this is also the simplest thing in the universe, which brings me to um, one of the big problems with working with, uh, with quantum field theory. It's really hard. This is by far, uh, well, this is the simplest thing in the universe. It's extremely difficult to understand even quantum space, even empty quantum space, uh, using the best theories that, that we have. In fact, I think it's fair to say the mathematics that... Um, we use to describe quantum field theory uh, is much, much harder than the mathematics in any other area of, uh, of physics or, or any other part of science. So it's a real challenge. We're not really there yet, and there's a lot about quantum field theory that we're still struggling to understand, struggling to understand the equations. Um, however, we do know that these are the equations that describe our world. This is what our world looks like, even when nothing else is, is going on. Okay, so what I want to do... Um, for the rest of the talk is, is really two things. Uh, I want to tell you um, what our best theory of the universe is. I'm going to tell you in some detail what our best theory of the universe is. And then what I want to do is tell you um, what we're doing to try and go beyond it and, and understand what's at, at the next level. Um, but the key message is um, all our theories of the universe are theories of these fluid-like substances which bubble and ripple even when nothing's there. If they ripple in a big way, that's what we call a particle. Okay? That's, uh, that's the first punchline of, of the talk. All right, let me tell you about um, uh, the best theory we, we, we currently have. Uh, what I'm going to do is, is firstly tell you uh, what the fields are in that theory, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit about how those fields interact with each other. Uh, those two uh, facts combined um, basically uh, summarize what we call of the laws of physics today. 
Okay, so we have a theory. Um, it is, I think it's fair to say, uh, the pinnacle of science. It's taken us 400 years to develop this theory. It is by far the greatest scientific theory we have ever written down. Uh, it's a theory which correctly predicts the result of every single experiment we've ever done in the history of science. Okay, I think it's really one of the great achievements in human civilization. Um, of course, we should be singing this theory uh, from... Um, where do you sing things from? Okay. Rooftops, thank you. We should be singing this theory from rooftops, um, but you know, we're, we're, a, we're a bit rubbish as theoretical physicists. We've given it the worst name. Uh, we call this theory the standard model. Okay? <laughs> if you hear the word standard model in your head, you should be thinking greatest scientific theory of all time. That's, that, that's what it means. Let me tell you what the standard model is. Um, I, I should confess, uh, there's a few complexities I'm going to sweep under the carpet, but <laughs> roughly it's, uh, it's right. Um, the standard model consists of uh, four fields whose ripples give rise to particles. One of those fields is the electron field, and you get electrons. The other, another two are the, the uh, two quark fields, the up and the down quark. Everything you're made of is consisted of ripples of those three fields. On top of that, it turns out there's a fourth field called the neutrino field. Uh, the ripples of this neutrino field uh, give rise to particles that we call neutrinos. It's fairly easy to miss neutrinos. You don't have, okay, I wanted to say you don't have any of them in your body, but that's, that's not quite true. Uh, since this talk started, there's been about a thousand billion of them that have just streamed from out of space, passed through the body of each and every one of you, and then carried on throughout. Uh, through the Earth. So they're there, but they don't really do very much. They, they play an important role in the early universe, but they don't play an important role for you know, what we're made of. Um, but nonetheless, there are, there are four uh, fields that give rise to particles. And for those of you who know something, I, I should fess up. I'm, um, I'm hiding a little bit here that, that there's actually some repetition and some extra fields um, that uh, um, I, I, can, I can happily tell you about after the talk, but it's not quite true that these are the only things. Um, there are then four forces at play in the universe. And two of these are very familiar to you. There's the force of gravity, which is responsible for this, the force of electricity and magnetism that Faraday and Maxwell understood. And then there's two further forces that uh, are only at play on distant scales comparable to the nucleus of the atom. So we call them the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force. Uh, the strong nuclear force is responsible for keeping uh, protons and quarks stuck together inside the nucleus of the atom. And the weak nuclear force is responsible for nuclear decay and, among other things, for making the sunshine, for example. And each of these um, uh, forces also has a field associated to it. So this one, of course, is the field that Faraday suggested, the field of electricity and magnetism. Uh, for what it's worth, the field associated to this is called the gluon field, and the field associated to this is called the W and Z boson fields. And uh, gravity, it turns out, is a little bit special. Uh, so Einstein taught us 100 years ago uh, that the field associated to gravity is actually space and time itself. And if you've never heard that before, that was just the world's shortest introduction to general relativity. Uh, and I won't say any, any, anything more. All right, so, so this is where we currently are with understanding everything in the universe. It's, it's uh, four fields whose ripples give rise to particles, and another four fields uh, that um, tell these particles how to interact. And roughly speaking, what we call the laws of physics is the following dance between these fields. Uh, the electron field ripples. 
Perhaps there's an electron there. When the electron field ripples, it causes some other fields to start to ripple and sway as well. So the electromagnetic field starts to sway, and the gravitational field starts to sway. And then that, in turn, causes the quark field to start to move. And all of our current laws of physics, as we, as we know them, is this intricate dance, this interplay between the different fields waxing and waning and rippling backwards and forwards. Okay, it's really quite a, a, a beautiful story. All right. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about this. Um, I, I should warn you, you know, when you're a young academic, they, they send you on training courses to give public talks like this. And um, there's one rule that they just they hammer into you. Do not show equations under any circumstances whatsoever. Um, and I, I just thought I'd violate this, this, this rule. Because, you know, I'm a theoretical physics, and the equations is what I do. And if you had a poet up here, you wouldn't tell him not to read poetry. So I, I'm just going to show you... Um, the equation that describes everything that we've ever done in the history of science. Everything is, is, is combined in this equation. You know, I, I don't expect you to understand it, not least because there's parts of this equation that no one in the world has really got to grips with yet. Um, but nonetheless, uh, it, okay, it's not the simplest thing in the world, but it's not the most complicated thing in in the world either. You know, you could write it on a T-shirt. In, in fact, if you go to CERN, you can buy a T-shirt with... <laughs> this written on it. Um, and, you know, to explain everything we've ever done, I think it's not, not too bad. Uh, let me just try and give you a sense of, you know, what we do in theoretical physics and, and, and the games we play. Um, each term in this equation uh, tells us something new about the way the world works. So this first term here uh, was written down in 1915, just this R, uh, by Albert Einstein and explains gravity meaning it explains everything about gravity. Anything you want to know about gravity, you can solve this equation in different ways, and it will tell you the answer. So if you want to know how fast that apple fell from the tree when Newton observed it, this equation will tell you. If you want to know how the planets orbit the sun, or how the sun is part of a, what, a thousand billion other stars orbiting our galaxy, this equation will tell you. If you want to know what happens when two enormous black holes collide emitting energy in gravitational waves which permeate the universe, this equation will tell you. If you want to know how the entire universe is expanding, all of that is captured just in this one tiny equation. Okay? My colleague uh, in Cambridge, Stephen Hawking, uh, made a career in discovering astonishing things about black holes. What he really did is just find insights into the solutions to this equation that no one else had, had realized. Okay, so there's an, there's an astonishing compactness to this. I think that, that, that should be clear. You know, when we th say we understand something in physics, this is what we mean, that we can take all of these vast, disparate phenomena and compress them into uh, just you know, a very simple equation like this that just gives the right answer for anything you ask. Uh, this is the term that was written down by James Clerk Maxwell. It describes anything you ever want to know about the way light works or the phenomena of electricity and magnetism. It's all contained in, in here. Uh, these are similar equations for um, uh, the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force. Uh, this is a wonderful part of the equation. This was written down by uh, a Cambridge physicist in 1929 uh, called Paul Dirac. And Paul Dirac is really one of the heroes of, of 20th century science. In fact, next time you go to Westminster Abbey, uh, a little after the entrance to the door, if you look down, you'll find this equation engraved in the, uh, in, in the stone. Um, they didn't like that because Dirac was an atheist, but you know, his equation wasn't, so I think it's, uh, it's appropriate. Um, 
uh, one of the astonishing things here, this equation by Dirac uh, explains, uh, describes all the matter in the universe. And one of the amazing things is that the equation that describes a neutrino or an electron or either of those quarks is exactly the same equation. Okay? They're very, very different in their properties, but the equation that underlies them is, is the same for, for all of them. Uh, finally, there's a bunch of things here with a capital H in. And it's actually something which I didn't tell you uh, on the last slide. This is something new, um, and it's something that became quite famous about five years ago. Uh, these are part of uh, the standard model um, that was written down in the 1960s by an English physicist who works in Edinburgh, whose name is Peter Higgs. And uh, Higgs wrote these equations down, I think, in 1964. Uh, by the 1970s, it was clear that this had to be part of our understanding of the universe. Um, and yet, we'd never seen the particle associated to this Higgs field. So Higgs postulated there was an extra field everywhere in the universe, and that there should be ripples of this field that give rise to a new particle, which we subsequently named the Higgs boson. Now, uh, you may have heard, uh, five years ago, July 4th, 2012, um, we finally had the technology to build a machine, the Large Hadron Collider. This is a picture of uh, one of the detectors in the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, this machine ran for approximately two or three years uh, and finally succeeded in creating a little ripple of the Higgs field, uh, which gave rise to this particle called the Higgs boson. So this is the actual data from the machine. Whenever you see a little bump like this, it tells you that there's a new particle. Uh, this is a picture of Peter Higgs being found. Um, <laughs> Uh, and th there's an astonishing story here. Peter Higgs wrote these equations down almost 50 years before the particle was discovered. Okay, 50 years based on just pure thought alone and you know, consistency of, of mathematics and consistency of the universe. It took 50 years to develop the technology, thousands of people to build this machine to create the Higgs boson, and now we have it, it behaves in exactly the way that these equations predicted all along. And exactly the way, with many, many detailed properties, uh, all of which agree with uh, the equations that, that Peter Higgs wrote down 50 years ago. It's, it's an astonishing story. All right. Um, so this, uh, as I've said, is, is the greatest equation we've, we've ever written down. Um, I think it's fair to say uh, physicists have something of a love-hate relationship with, with this equation. Um, you know, of course, you know, we're, we're all in awe of it because, because it correctly describes everything in our universe. But there's, there's a very unusual sociology in physics, and one which I personally think is, is very healthy, which is that we're desperate to be wrong. Right? It's important to be wrong, because when you're wrong, it means that you're going to learn something moving forwards. And so the fact that this equation is working so well in giving the right answers to all of the experiments we're doing is, is actually something of a disappointment for us. What we really want is to find a place where this equation stops working where we see something new that isn't described by this equation, or we do an experiment and it gives the wrong answer. That's sort of the goal of physics moving forward, to just find a little crack in the standard model so that we can understand what lies beyond. And so for the last 10 minutes or so, I just want to tell you about some of the ideas we have um, on, on how that's going to work. Um, let me firstly t tell you why we think this can't be the last word. We know for sure that there's stuff that this equation doesn't describe. Because although this equation tells us the right answer for everything uh, here on Earth, if we take our telescopes and we look out into space, there's a lot out there 
which is not described in this equation. So, for example, uh, we know that out there in space, uh, there is invisible particles. We call these particles dark matter. Uh, there must be fluctuations, ripples in some dark matter field, but we have no idea what this dark matter field is. It's not part of our, our standard model. Uh, something which took us by a huge surprise 15 years ago, uh, the universe is accelerating, We've, sorry, the universe is expanding, we've known that for 100 years, but this expansion is getting faster and faster and faster over time. We have no idea why. We, we, we have words that we, we give it. We say that there's an anti-gravity force field spread throughout space and we call it dark energy, but the honest truth is we're completely ignorant about, about what this thing is. It's not contained in the equation I just showed you. Uh, other things, the universe um, hasn't been around forever. The universe uh, has been around for somewhere between 13.77 and 13.78 billion years. We know this quite precisely now. Um, we have no idea how the universe started or, or you know, what happened to kick the universe off. It's not contained in, in this equation. All right, I, you know, each of these I could, I could spend a whole lecture on. Um, spend many lectures on. Uh, let, let me tell you just a little bit about the Big Bang, um, because I think there's something um, in, interesting here to say. Um, it, it's usually said, or it's usually thought, that the Big Bang theory is the theory about how the universe came into existence. And that's not really correct. Um, in fact, firstly, it's a terrible name. Uh, there's no bang in the Big Bang theory, there's no explosion. Uh, the Big Bang theory does not say that the universe kicked off with an explosion. Uh, in fact, perhaps surprisingly, the Big Bang Theory doesn't say anything at all about how the universe started. Okay? The, the honest truth is we have no idea whatsoever about how the universe started. So what the Big Bang Theory does say is that there was a time in the past, roughly 14 billion years ago, when the universe was much smaller and much hotter and the entire universe was filled with a fireball. Okay, that's the essence of the Big Bang Theory, and the details are about how that fireball evolved and what was going on in the fireball when the universe was, was younger. So it's not to do with the beginning of the universe and how it started, it's just to do with how the universe was when it was younger. Now, you know, th this word theory is always loaded. Uh, Big Bang Theory makes it sound like, you know, maybe we know, maybe we don't. You know, it, it, it's Big Bang fact. There's absolutely no doubt this fireball existed. We're sure of this uh, because we've seen it. In fact, not only have we seen it, we've actually taken a photograph of it. So this is a photograph of the fireball that filled the universe almost 14 billion years ago. Uh, we call it the cosmic microwave background radiation, but a much better name is just the photograph of the fireball of, of the Big Bang. Um, what you're looking at here is basically the entire sky. You, you should think about this, you know, rather like the pictures of the Earth drawn in a shape like this, if you wrap this round so it's a sphere, this sphere surrounds us. So this is what the fireball looks like looking at all the different regions of, um, of the sky. And you can see it looks like a fireball. You know, it's flickering. There were hot bits that are uh, painted in red here, and there were cold bits that, that are in blue. And by looking at this flickering in some detail, we get to understand what was happening way back 14 billion years ago when the universe was, was much younger. And one of the very biggest questions we have is what's causing the flickering in the fireball of the Big Bang? And uh, we have an answer, and I think it's one of the most astonishing answers in science. Um, so let me tell you. Okay. Um, way back at the Big Bang, 
It may be that particles didn't exist. We don't really know what, what was there. But one thing we know for sure is these quantum fields existed. Because just like you can't remove the quantum fields from the vacuum, you can't remove them from the early universe. They're, they're things that fill all of space and, and all of time. So when the universe was very, very young, and by this I mean a, few, a fraction of a second after the universe began, there was a quantum field. And during that fraction of a second, the universe expanded very, very quickly. So when a physicist says very, very quickly, that, that really means quickly. It expanded by a factor of a million, 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 million in, in a fraction of a second. It expanded so quickly that these uh, quantum vacuum fluctuations of the quantum field got stretched in the expansion of the universe and frozen in place and then stretched across the entire sky. And so actually, the flickering that we're seeing here at the very largest scales in the universe is actually the fluctuations of a quantum field way, way back in the first few fractions of a second after the Big Bang started. Okay, it's an astonishing story, but we can do the calculations here, and we can compare with the data that we're getting from various telescopes, and we can see that the match is absolutely perfect. What we're seeing in the sky at these very big distance scales is quantum fluctuations from slightly after the Big Bang. And, of course, that, that leaves a question. Um, you know, which field is it that we're, we're seeing here? And the answer is we don't actually know. But the hope is that we can build new experiments in the future and we can get some sense of, of what the properties of this field are that's imprinted on the sky uh, to start to go beyond that equation for, for the standard model. All right, that's what's happening in cosmology. There's lots of stuff happening here on Earth. We've got lots of new experiments. Uh, the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider in, in CERN, uh, discovered the Higgs boson back in 2012. It then closed down for uh, somewhere between two and three years, and it then came back up, but with twice the energy that, that it had before. And it's now been running for two years, and its goal is, is twofold, really. Um, it's trying to understand the Higgs in much more detail and it's doing a great job on that. Uh, secondly, it's trying to see if there's something new. And I should tell you what we all thought, as, us as theorists. Um, we thought that when it found the Higgs, it would very quickly find many, many other particles. And it would give us a route to go beyond the standard model. It would show us that there were new things that we hadn't discovered before, and we'd, by now, be starting to write down whatever the new theory is that underlies the standard model of of physics. Um, and that didn't happen. I, we're all, I think, in a little bit of, of shock about this, but it hasn't discovered anything new. Um, it's done millions upon millions of different experiments, and every single one agrees perfectly with that equation, the, the, the standard model. Actually, that, that, that would have been true a month ago, but in the last month, there, there's been um, uh, a suggestion that there's one experiment about the million which actually disagrees with the prediction from from the standard model. Um, it's too early to tell if this is you know, something real or if it's going to go away. It's going to need a lot more work. But it's very exciting, because you only need one thing to be wrong in science, and then your theory is incorrect. So one thing being wrong just gives you a little window into seeing what, what, goes, uh, what comes next. All right, so, so this is what's going on with experiments. Um, to finish with, uh, as I'm a theorist, I just, I just want to take you back um, to this equation, because um, Suppose you went back to the, uh, the Victorian times and you looked at the periodic table. With 2020 hindsight, you would be able to see patterns in the periodic table 
that hinted about the structure that lies underneath. There are, there are very clear hints in the periodic table about the existence of atoms and electrons and the rules of quantum mechanics and so on. So the game a lot of us play is, can we stare at this equation, which describes our world, and maybe start to see patterns uh, that are telling us about what's underlying it, about something more fundamental uh, underlying the laws of physics. And in fact, there are things that just stare you in the face. For example, uh, the equation that describes electricity and magnetism is very, very similar to the equation which describes the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force. And I've just changed the letters here, but even if you look in detail, they're very, very similar which suggests that maybe these three forces aren't maybe so different after all. Perhaps they're just different facets of one underlying force that explains everything. Similarly, I already mentioned the equations that describe the neutrino, the electron, and the quarks, they're all exactly the same equation. So maybe these different particles that we have are not really different. Maybe it's just one particle, and we're sort of seeing them from slightly different angles, so they look different. Um, it's very tempting, therefore, to write down theories which uh, um, combine these things together. We have many such theories. They're very pretty. They're very tempting. They're called grand unified theories. Alternatively, maybe you want something which relates uh, the forces up here to the matter here and to the Higgs boson here. We have a beautiful theory that does that. It's called supersymmetry. Or maybe what you want is to just get all of this uh, together, try and get gravity into the game, and write down one equation from which everything we know just, uh, just pops out. Um, I have a theory for you. If that's what you want, it's called string theory. So for 30 years, theorists like me have been trying to come up with these ideas uh, about how to take this and, and get something deeper. Um, and you know, we were very happy with ourselves. We thought we'd done a good job um, until the LHC turned on because the LHC was supposed to test these theories and was supposed to discover the new things that, that we had been predicting, and it hasn't seen anything at all. So it's kind of a weird situation at the moment in, in, in theoretical physics, especially in particle physics. Um, it, it's, it's a little too early to spell you know, complete doom, um, but I think our favorite theories are certainly looking precarious. I think the things that we've, we would have put money on 10 years ago are not working out in the naive and optimistic way that, that, that we then thought. Um, which, uh, well, different physicists have different viewpoints on this. Some of them just have their head in the sand, as far as I can tell. Uh, some of them think we just need to build a much bigger machine and all their theories will, uh, will work out. Uh, personally, I think we need to go back to the drawing board a little bit. I think we need to revisit um, some of the basic assumptions that we've been uh, working with in physics. Um, and uh, in particular, uh, this is our drawing board. This is the equation which, as I've said, explains everything we know in the universe. But there are several pieces in this equation that we don't quite understand. Uh, so me and many of my colleagues are now returning to this just to see if somehow buried within it there's some other pattern, something else that, uh, that we've missed that will help us move forward. All right, uh, I'll finish there to, um, to sort of give you the punchline. Um, this is by far the greatest equation that we've ever written down, um, but we all hope that sometime in the future we'll be able to give you something uh, a little better. Okay, thank you for your attention. So I'm very happy to answer questions about um, anything in the universe, anything at all. Um, yes, please. Ah, oh, we have a mic. Good. Uh, 
I. In that equation, you have a Z. <laughs> on the left. Yes, on yeah. the left. How, how you would <laughs> conceptualize it or describe it in simpler terms. Do, do you know that the Z is... So I explained everything on the right-hand side. Uh, last time I gave this talk, somebody asked me the same question. Do you know, it floored me. It had never occurred to me to ask what, <laughs> what Z. So what I can say is the following. I, I can tell you the name, not that it helps. The name is the partition function. It's uh, a very complicated object where if you get to calculate what this thing is, there's a way to extract from it the result of any experiment that, that you care about. So in some way, it's, it's just a way to... Um, to take all of the huge amount of information that's in there and arrange it in a particularly simple fashion. Um, I wish there was a deeper thing I could say than that, but that, that's the truth. Yeah. Yes, please. <coughs> what are your views on the multiverse? <laughs> okay, good. Um, let, let me explain to the audience what, what the multiverse is. Um, uh, we have a set of laws of physics that govern the universe as far as we, we, we can see, which means 14 billion light years in, in every direction. Uh, there are suggestions that there are other regions of space and time far flung from here where the laws of physics may be completely different to what we have, in which case we would have a much bigger vision of what we mean by the universe. There would be our universe with some laws of physics, but then other bubbles further away with, with other laws of physics. And um, there's been quite a lot of speculation about this, mostly for the following reason. If you look at the laws of physics governing our universe, um, there are various things that look surprising, various things that are fine-tuned to a way that we're uncomfortable with. For example, if the mass of the neutron and proton were slightly different, then chemistry would cease to exist, stars would cease to exist, life would certainly cease to exist. And we'd like to know, you know, why the mass of those particles is, is chosen exactly how it is. It's an odd question, of course, because if they weren't like that, we wouldn't be here to uh, observe. Um, so to sort of get around these kind of questions, people have postulated the multiverse. My personal opinion is, is that it's, it's cheap, that it's, uh, it's a way to sort of argue yourself out of what is a genuine problem, and that you should probably address the problem head on. There are, there are, there are many things you could argue the multiverse is the answer for. Um, but it's a way that sort of distracts you from searching for, for better answers. So that, that, that's my own personal viewpoint. I have to say, uh, smart people have uh, disagreeing views on that. Yes, please. Um, what, was the, what was the experiment that didn't work out in the last month? Ah, uh, good. Um, firstly, I need to tell you about, about something that I lied about. Um, <laughs> Okay, four particles. It's not quite true. For a reason that we don't fully understand, this collection of particles was then repeated twice over. So there's actually three kinds of particles which look very much like the electron, except they're, they're heavier. And there are six different quarks rather than, the, the, than two. Um, the, the second heaviest of those quarks is called the bottom quark. It decays in various ways to other particles. And it turns out it's decaying more often by a factor of two to two muons than it is to two electrons. So it's, it's something very detailed and technical, but it's exactly the kind of thing that, that this equation should give the right answer for. Um, I, there's one more caveat. All of this stuff is probabilistic because it's all quantum mechanics, and so it's all you know, running on, on probabilities. And so it could just be a random fluke. So we have to run for another year, and then we'll see if you know, the, the statistics uh, improve or if, if the whole thing goes away. 
Um, but for once, though, for me, that this, this sounds right. You know, we, it's, it's no big discovery. It's nothing you can you know, stand up and say there's this new particle. and It's nothing we expected. And you know, it's, it's the devil's in the details. I, I think this seems more exciting than many things for a long time. Yes, please. Thanks. Um, love the talk. It's great. Thank um, you. As, as we look out at other, uh, through the galaxy, we're discovering more and more Earth-like planets. Yeah. What do you think about that? Do you think there's life elsewhere? If so, what kind of life? Yeah. Is there something exactly like us? You know, is there a hay, hay <laughs> festival somewhere else going on? You'd hope so, right? They should be having fun if they're, if they're out there. Um, I, I can tell you, I, I, there's a, a colleague of mine in Cambridge, his name is Didier Kellogg. Um, he's one of the, the most successful planet finders. He finds these, these exoplanets. Uh, I had a very fun dinner with him and a, a bunch of other scientists, a lot, lot of biologists, and we asked ourselves exactly this question. And the thing that was striking is every single physicist at the table thought, of course there's life out there. It's just, it's just obvious. You know, there's... Uh, there's, what, a thousand billion stars in our galaxy. There's a thousand billion galaxies out there. It's just the numbers are huge. And every biologist disagreed. Every biologist said that, you know, the chart, that the probability that life formed was just so minute. And the honest answer is there's a very big number, which is the number of planets, and a very small number, which is the probability of life forming, and we have no idea what happens when you multiply those numbers together. Um, you know, I, I'm still a physicist. I still think, of course, there's life out there. Um, but I don't know. Yes, please. Hello. Um, I want to ask about the Big Bang. Yeah. Um, as I understand it, when you have a lot of mass in a small space, you have a black hole. That's right. How, do we, how did we ever escape from the original black hole? I've heard about inflation, but I'd like an explanation from a physicist rather than an economist. <laughs> it's a good choice. Um, yeah, there wasn't really a black hole at the beginning. There's a sense in which there was. You know, at the end of a black hole, when you jump into a black hole, um, what lies ahead of you in your future is something called the singularity, where, where the curvature of space-time gets uh, infinite. Um, the Big Bang is kind of like an inverted version of that. What lies behind us in our past is also exactly the same kind of singularity. Um, but I think there, after that, the... Uh, um, the analogy ceases. So, so, as I said, we don't really know how the universe started. We think in that first few fractions of a second after the universe started, uh, the universe was mostly empty and then underwent this enormous period of expansion. When that stopped, the uh, energy that was in the expansion got turned into creating the matter uh, in a process that's called reheating. And then there was a fireball. That fireball lasted for 380,000 years. It slowly cooled, and out of the fireball came dust, which later formed stars and galaxies and, and planets. And it's a story that I think we understand very, very well. Still need to improve things, but I think the basic story is, uh, is down. Does, does that answer your question to some extent? <laughs> OK, find me afterwards, and I'll, I'll tell you more. Please. Yeah, we've not got there yet. <laughs> I'm wondering if what's underlying it could possibly be that we've hit 
almost the end of the road with discovering the stuff. And could it be that what we need to be looking at is our own perception, that if we adjust the way we're thinking of our own existence, instead of looking outward, maybe it's a I think I should tell them what, what you're saying. So the, the, the question was, could it be roughly that we've hit the end of the road uh, in, in sort of looking at smaller and smaller distance scales, and the thing that we need to adjust is our own perception of, of how things, things go. Um, do you know, the, the point of adjusting our own perception should have happened a century ago. And when, when we got to understand atomic physics and quantum mechanics, it was so radically different from anything that, that, that came before or, or indeed since. The, the fact that, you know, we, we, were, we didn't evolve as human beings to understand atomic physics. And yet, uh, through the use primarily of mathematics, rather than uh, um, you know, our flawed intuition, uh, we made a lot of progress and we've just nailed that answer. And I think that's the way forward. You know, that's the powerful tool that has made science progress for 400 years is quantitative explanations in terms of mathematics. So for me, I still think that's, that's the way forward. Where, where are we? I can't... So, right at the back. That's it. Okay, hello. Um, from the outside, theoretical physics and the search for a grand unified theory seems like a pretty fragmented sort of an un undertaking with lots of wildly different theories competing. Um, in, in 2017, how, collabor how collaborative is that search, in fact, from within the community, and, and what parts of theoretical physics can you see coming together to make progress? I, I think it's, a, it's an amazingly collaborative uh, community. It, it's certainly true that there are lots of theorists who have different opinions, lots of pet theories and so on, and lots of them are, are very vocal in, in, in the public and at, at, at places like this. But, you know, the, the, the real progress is going to be made by, by theorists talking with, with experimenters do, doing wildly different experiments, from building satellites to look back to the Big Bang. Um, last year we, we learned, we discovered gravitational waves for the first time. That's amazing progress. Um, the experiments at the LHC. There's also areas, different areas of physics, something called quantum information we've sort of suddenly realized is becoming important. So I, for me, it's, it's, the, it's the unity of physics that, that I love most about, about the subject. I, I really think, I, I don't see it as fragmented at all. I, I th see it as, as one subject with one set of equations that, that, that govern everything. Okay. Yes. Hello. Is this, uh, yeah. Could you... Tell us a bit more about how the photograph was constructed. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, so I told you we, um, we, we took a photograph of something that's 14 billion years old. That's pretty cool, right? Um, so, so what do you do? The, the key fact is that when you um, look out into space, you're also looking backwards in time. So when you look at the sun, you don't see the sun as it is now, you see the sun as it was eight minutes ago because it took light that, that long to, to get here. When you look at the stars, you see them are as they were years, sometimes even hundreds of years ago. So if you want to see something that's 14 billion years old, you just have to look a really, really long way away. Um, now, usually that's hard because the things you're looking for are, are small. You know, if you want to see a star that, that's... Uh, I think we have seen stars that are seven or eight billion years old, maybe even older, but at least galaxies, you know, you've got to know exactly where you're looking. The nice thing about the fireball is it, it was everywhere. So it doesn't matter where you look, 
you're always going to see it. So what we do is we build a satellite. Um, actually, it was first discovered on ground-based telescopes, but this picture was taken by somebody called the Planck Satellite about five years ago. You build a satellite, you send it about three million kilometers away. It sits there in a very cold part of space, and it just, uh, it just stares out and, and slowly scans the sky, taking in microwave radiation, which is this afterglow of, of the Big Bang. Where am I looking? In the middle here. Hello. Hello. It's actually a similar question. I mean, in what sense is that not just random? It's just chaos, isn't it? So it's a picture of nothing. It can only be a picture if it represents something orderly, surely. It's, there's order in there. Yeah. In fact, you, let, me, let me see if I can show you. Um, the, the, the first bit of order is that the... The fluctuations aren't, aren't random. The fluctuations have a characteristic size scale, which, which is roughly, you know, this. You know, th there's a few big ones, like this one here. There's actually one that you can't see so well here. That's, that, that's fairly big and cold. But there's a, um, a characteristic scale of, of these fluctuations. So what we can do is we can take this flickering, we can understand the order that's in there, and there is order. And from that, we, we can extract what's going on. Yeah. How am I doing for time? People are, am I, am I, am I dead? Okay, all right. Okay, um, I'll finish there. Thank you very much for your attention. <laughs>